Believers are part of a greater family with deeper family ties. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that we can address you as Father. We thank you that by and through the natural Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has done everything necessary for our adoption to be your sons and daughters. Father, today remind us of this spiritual family, Jesus' family, of which we are a part by grace. Cause us to consider the, the deep ties that we have, not of blood, but of faith. Bless us, Father, with your word. I pray for myself, for the Holy Spirit to guide me and to use the words of my mouth to rightly reflect and rightly to divide the word of truth and that you might work, Holy Spirit, in our hearts, teaching us your very word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 3 as we read just a few verses, verses 31 through 35, as we read about Jesus' family. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The family as a circle of love is more than just simply a sentiment that we might see reflected on a card that we might send to express sympathy to someone or to comfort someone. It is also one of the ways the cultural revolution that is well underway in our society today is redefining and, by the way, in so doing, seeking to destroy the traditional institution of family. The family as a circle of love, according to these, these cultural revolutionaries, means that any combination of individuals who have some attachment to one another can be a family, and in so defining the family in this way, they are seeking to outdate, if not destroy, the traditional definition that this social engineering project may go forth unheeded. But people of God must remember God's definition for the family, and one way to understand that definition of the family from a biblical view first and foremost, but also the traditional view of most cultures, including our own, is that a family is a community of people who are related to one another by marriage. We have to define marriage between one man and one woman, and related by birth or adoption according to the divine institution of God for the fulfilling of the cultural mandate. That is to fulfill God's purposes for his people. The basic human relationships that we know as family, as God has instituted the family, are the basic building blocks of any society. 
Well, today we do not hear, in the words of Jesus, a redefinition of the family. He is not redefining the divine institution. Rather, he is teaching about a greater family that has a priority in the lives of God's people and a family whereby the normal human earthly ties of family are overridden by the demands of this greater family. And so today we'll be looking at Jesus' family, a greater family, a community of faith, an eternal family. We might say, as is commonly said, a forever family. And so we'll look at three things in our text today. Jesus' spiritual family, and that spiritual family is inclusive, and that spiritual family is also exclusive. So first we want to look at at the priority of Jesus' family, his spiritual family. Members of my extended family on both sides, including Brene's family, have done genealogical research and they develop a family history. We know it as a family tree. And, And such a family tree or family history links us to the past, our ancestors, and is, I think, helpful in giving us a a perspective, a sense of history, a sense of identity, a connection with our family from the past, maybe even a sense of, of belonging in the family that we have today. And so Jesus had a family. We see this in Matthew chapter 1. We, we find the Lord's genealogy, the family tree of our Savior. And this is significant, of course, this genealogy that we find in Matthew 1 for the purposes of redemption. It, it, it shows us, it establishes Jesus as that promised son of David, that king that will come in that royal line, Messiah. But it also serves to emphasize just the, the simple fact that Jesus had a physical family. And we see this in verses 31 and 32 of our passage today. Now, we must acknowledge that Jesus' Jesus, family situation is a bit unique in that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, as our Apostles' Creed says. But still, he had a family. And he addressed his family in our text today, his mother Mary and his brothers, came to Capernaum in verse 31. It's, it is unclear as to why they came. We might consider the fact that it is natural for a mother like Mary to be concerned about her son, her firstborn. After all, some of Jesus' friends and associates who had also come from Capernaum and maybe other places had accused him of being deranged because of his hectic pace in ministry. Not to mention the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees had come from Jerusalem and they had accused Mary's son of being demon-possessed. Come on, moms, you know. You're a mother bear. You would be like Mary, too. You, you might very well want to go and, and defend your son. And so perhaps that, that was the reason 
Who were these brothers that came? Well, Mary's husband Joseph last appears on the scene in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. You remember that when Jesus was a boy and, and his parents lost track of him because he was at the temple. But the scriptures also show us that Joseph and Mary had other children. In fact, Joseph had at least four sons. All you have to do is to go to Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 or Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. And there you will find these at least four sons listed, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus had at least two sisters, irrespective of the reason Mary and Jesus' brothers came. The text clearly shows us that Jesus had a family like you and I have families. But the focus of the passage is not on Jesus' physical family. It is on his spiritual family. And due to the size of the crowd, Mary and the brothers who had come could not get close enough to Jesus to get his attention. And so word passed through the crowd to Jesus and we read in verse 32 that the crowd said, Hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And so our Lord responded with this question in verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? And I'm sure that perplexed some that were in the crowd. Maybe even thinking, what kind of a son or what sort of a brother is Jesus? But obviously our Lord was not disregarding the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. Obviously our Lord was not indicating that, that he was disassociating, uh, disowning his brothers and his sisters. No, his purpose was not to indicate a severance in the relationship with his physical family, but to teach about a greater family a more important family in the eternal perspective, a family with ties more important than earthly family ties. Consider verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus called those who had followed him and who had gathered before him his family. Clearly not suggesting they were all part of his physical or natural or biological family. The spiritual family to which he pointed was a messianic community of faith. The core family of God as one commentator put it. We, we may think of this spiritual family as God's covenant people, members of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, a family that is eternal, a family that truly is, as, as corny as the phrase goes, a forever family. And the demands of this spiritual family are radical. The demands of this spiritual family override Trump the 
earthly ties of the physical family. And we see this reflected in passages like Luke 9 and Matthew chapter 8. Jesus said, leave the dead, that is one's deceased father, to bury the dead. In Luke 14, we read, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Our Lord, again, is not teaching disrespect for the fifth commandment. The word and he's not teaching for us to literally, in anger, hate our parents and our siblings. The word translated hate has an interesting meaning to it here in this context. It literally means to love less. And what Jesus is saying is that we are to love everything less, even our parents and our brothers and our sisters and our extended family, to love them less that we might love Jesus the most. That's what he means when he says to hate your family. That there is a greater family. That there is a greater father. That there is a greater brother that we are to love more. What Jesus is teaching When he says, who are my mother and brothers, is the necessity to die to the whole of one's life. To the entire cadre of relationships that we might have and love and appreciate. In order to follow Jesus as a member of his eternal family. It means we are to have a loose grip on the most basic of human relationships on this earth in order to have a stronger grip on Jesus. Now, what might this look like? It might look like standing for truth in your family when the rest of the family doesn't really uh, want to hear it. It might look like being faithful to God's call over your life and, by the way, the life of your family, though it's not what you really want or desire or it doesn't meet your plans. It might look like letting a child go off to some far mission field or to a far country in another part of the city to be full-time in ministry. It might look like witnessing Christ to family members who are resistant and angry about you speaking of Jesus. And in so doing, you risk rejection. For those who follow Jesus, who seek his kingdom, and who are part of his spiritual family, there is a radical demand for being a son or daughter, a brother or sister in Jesus' family. 
the demand overrides all earthly loyalties. Jesus' priority is his spiritual family. Therefore, our priority must be Jesus' spiritual family. And we must understand that it will be difficult at times. Because our loyalty to Christ must be greater than our loyalty to those family ties. Second, Jesus' spiritual family is inclusive. Not all family members uh, look the same. Sometimes this happens because a family adopts a child into their family that is of another race or ethnicity. Family looks different all of a sudden. It could be that a man and a woman marry and they are from different races or ethnicities and they look different. Their family looks different. And this whole area of the blended family now is another way that, that families reflect diversity. They, they look different. What about this new family that, that Jesus is teaching about here? We have no idea what the makeup was of that crowd that, that Jesus was looking at in verse 34 when he says, these, these are my mother, these, these are my brothers. It, even if the individuals that had come from surrounding nations that came to the Sea of Galilee in verses 7 through 12 that we considered previously, even if they were there, that crowd probably looked similar. They were all Middle Easternish looking. And so likely there wasn't a great deal of diversity of skin color and there was some difference in ethnicity there more than likely. But yet what Jesus is indicating here is that his plan for the spiritual family is that there would be a glorious diversity, that it would be inclusive of all sorts of people. And so Jesus, as he looked about this group of people that he called his family in verse 34, he said this in verse 35, for whoever is my brother and sister and mother for whoever means whatever person with whatever skin color of whatever race of whatever ethnicity the two genders those of different social strata the wealthy the poor the influential the the common guy you think just think of any category that is used to to segment people, to distinguish people, whatever those categories are, they're included in that whoever that Jesus speaks about, about his spiritual family. And probably in, in Jesus' day, and certainly in the days of the book of Acts, the, the greatest divide was between Jew and Gentile. Even this wall of separation will be broken down 
where Jew and Gentile will come together in Christ and they will address one another as brother, sister. And this is played out throughout the pages of the book of Acts. Just think of Cornelius. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch. We read about this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 14 and 16. For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made us both Jew, that is both Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, resulting in both being reconciled to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus' spiritual family is not only inclusive of Jew and Gentile, but it is, a, it is inclusive of whoever, every other race, every other ethnicity, every other possible different type or different sort of person. As we've reflected in verses 7 through 12, as Jesus anticipates giving the great commission to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is, this is yet another, another aspect of that, of God's family, God's church, God's covenant community being representative of the nations. We see in Acts 1-8, just as the Holy Spirit will come and empower the church to be the witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. We, we see this plan of God and coming to its, its fruition as we have a glimpse into the, the very throne room of heaven in Revelation 5 as the people of God gathered there around the throne singing that, that new song and there are people there who are worshiping from every tribe and every tongue. And we see this as being the, the great plan of God, this, this diversity in his family. We're not going to all look the same. And that's a glorious thing, Jesus is saying. It's, that, it, it, it's the reality of the whoever, the inclusiveness of Jesus' family. More and more over the years, I've seen the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, our beloved denomination, more and more not looking the same. This is most noticeable at General Assembly worship services, where we have the church gathered. Probably the greatest distinction is the northerners and the southerners coming together. Blacks and whites, male and female, North Americans. and Do you know we have a Korean denomination? I'm, I'm sorry, Korean Presbytery in the PCA. And God's people from all over the world are gathered there as one. A glorious diversity. That's the family of God. Thus, we should welcome this diversity. We should welcome all sorts of people. There is no place for prejudices at any level in the family of God, in the church. 
And more and more, may we celebrate this glorious diversity, this, this whoever, he is my brother, he is my sister, Jesus is. May we celebrate that as we come together as the people of God, anticipating being together in heaven as the church triumphant, people gathered from every tribe and every nation. The church in heaven is not going to look the same either. May we celebrate diversity. So Jesus' spiritual family is inclusive, creating a glorious diversity. But then thirdly, Jesus' family, though it be inclusive, is a very, very exclusive family. Families are exclusive. When my three children were growing up, I, I told them, <clears throat> maybe more than they wanted uh, to hear, that their mother and I were exclusively their mother and their father, and they were exclusively our children. Of all the people on earth, only we could call two of them our daughters and one of them our son. Out of all the people on earth, their mother is the only woman they could call mom, and I was the only man that they could call dad. Through blood relations and adoption, we formed a family. It was exclusive. Now, this is obvious, isn't it? But we need to remember it as we also reflect upon the fact that Jesus' family is an exclusive family, not by blood or adoption. Well, this is where it gets complicated because it is by adoption, but not an earthly legal process that, that my family experienced. But it's a along the lines of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not bloodline. And so Jesus' spiritual family is gloriously inclusive of all sorts of people while being very exclusive over who is brought in to be part of that family. And again, the relation is by faith, and we should note that by faith, God adopts those whom he has redeemed in Christ as his children. So in a spiritual sense, yes, adoption is in play here. So Jesus taught the exclusivity of his family, again in verse 35, for whoever, look at that next phrase, does the will of God. He is my brother and my sister and my mother. The members of Jesus' families are those who do the will of God. So what does it mean? What does Jesus mean by doing the will of God? Well, by nature, man is not only incapable of doing the will of God, but does not desire to do the will of God in any, any shape, fashion, or form. And the scriptures point this out, that, that by nature, what man desires is sin. And we see in passages like Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then we turn to Romans 3, 23, 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Previously, Paul said, none are righteous, no, not one. These are all inclusive statements. And then we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and we read in, in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses of sins. Then we go to verse 3, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the scriptures teach that God, that man by nature is a sinner, but the scriptures also teach that God has dealt with our sin problem in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His redeeming work enables us a new heart and a new life and to do the will of God. I want to begin just reflecting on that for just a moment, but I want to turn to a passage about Jesus. It's about us too, but it's primarily about Jesus. Jesus is the natural son. He's not adopted. He's the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, uniquely the son of God. But he was given a mission to do the will of the Father. What was the will of the Father? Well, we find out in John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40. Let me read that for us. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus said, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let me just pause there and say, Jesus fulfilled the will of God, the will of his Father, perfectly. He, he's the son who, who did the Father's will. And then in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And let's reflect on that. The Father's will was for the Son to redeem a number that he had chosen from sinful humanity that they would be enabled to do the will of the Father. To be those who are adopted into his family. Jesus said, my brothers and sisters and my mother, they're the ones who do the will of the Father. By nature we can't, but in Christ we can. And we're brought into his family. Earlier I referenced Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 3, and that gives the bad news of our sin problem, our natural state of sinners. But yet, the scriptures tell us God has dealt with our sin, that, that though we are unable in ourselves to do his will, yet in Christ we have a new will. Listen to the good news of the gospel, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. God worked. God saved. God made us alive in Christ. Then in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, Paul emphasizes the power of God. The power of his grace through the gift of faith. And then in verse 10, Paul pushes the point home that God is the one who saves us. He is the one who has created us as his workmanship in Christ, adopted us into his family as his workmanship in Christ. We, we have been saved for a purpose, and that purpose is this, for the good works which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. In other words, God saves us to do his will. That we, we would be part of his family through this glorious reality of his spiritual adoption. 
of us. God enables those whom he has saved to be in his family and do his will. And we observe the same truth in the Old Testament passage that Bob read earlier from Psalm chapter 40. The the, the psalmist pointed, the, the whole psalm is about God, points to God. God drew him up from the pit of destruction and set his feet on on solid rock, verse 2. God put a new song in the psalmist's heart and gave him the ability to trust the Lord, verse 3. The psalmist then could say, because of what God had done, blesses the man who makes the Lord his trust. And yes, God is trustworthy, for God multiplied his wondrous deeds and his thoughts toward the psalmist, verse 5. And then we come to the key verse for our purposes today, verse 8. It says, I delight, no wonder the psalmist delights to do the will of God because God has worked and powerfully changed this psalmist and has enabled him to not, look at verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. We see there the God giving the psalmist a new heart, but I want you to notice something. The psalmist not only is indicating here that God has enabled him to do the will of God, but there's something even more. The psalmist delights in it. And brothers and sisters, and I can call you brothers and sisters, we can do the will of God, and that's great, we should. But do we delight in it? Delighting in doing the will of God comes from God. That's what the psalmist is teaching us here. This new and greater family Jesus taught about in the midst of that crowd gathered there at his, wherever he was staying in Capernaum, is spiritual. The relational tie is faith, not blood. Or even the legal human institution of adoption as great as it is it's faith spiritual adoption that family Jesus was teaching about is inclusive that family will reflect the nations there will be different looking people in that family and praise God for that this glorious diversity but this family is also an exclusive family The members are only those who have a new heart and a new life in Christ who are enabled not only to do the will of God but to delight in the will of God and doing the will of God. Our culture's progressive trajectory as we began with is redefining everything, it seems. Even the basic basic institutions of marriage and family But there's one institution they're not going to be able to touch. And that institution that is off limits to the revolutionaries of our culture that they cannot touch is Jesus' spiritual family, for it is eternal. It is his family, it is forever. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against his family, against his church, against his covenant community. Just a few implications. First of all, The most basic question is this. The most basic question we should be asking ourselves today is simply this. Am I in this family? The only way is by God's merciful and 
graciously giving of a new heart. A new heart is evidence in hating sin and repenting and turning to Christ in faith and in delighting in the will of God and delighting in doing the will of God. We may struggle in all sorts of ways, but if these three realities are not do not describe you at some level, then it could be that you are outside this family. And would you cry out to Jesus that he would bring you in? Our membership in this family also is a reason to give thanks to God, for it means he has been merciful and gracious to us, and he has saved us in, into a forever family. And I hope that some of what we've garnished today is just, I'm grateful that I'm part of a, of a greater family than my biological family. I'm part of a family that's going to last forever. And then this inclusive, exclusive nature of Jesus' family should enliven us, not only to, to rejoice in this glorious diversity, but also to have a passion to freely offer the good news of the gospel to all sorts of people, that they too might trust in Jesus and come and be our brothers and sisters in Christ, in this family. I have often thought about one of my seminary professors, Dr. Roger Nicole, and Dr. Nicole would meet if it, anyone, he would often meet me in the cafeteria or greet me in the parking lot as we were just going from here to there. And Dr. Nicole addressed everyone in this way. To the men, he, he would address it as he was greeting you. He would say, my good brother. And to the women, he would say, my good sister. <laughs> Without fail, every time. And I think I kind of took that for granted in the day, but it's come to mean something to me. Not, Dr. Nicole brings to mind the reality that we have while still living with a physical, biological family, which we should cherish, and yes, many blessings. But the greater reality is that we're a part of this spiritual family, this forever family, where we can truly address one another, even though we may look very different, be from a different part of the world, we can address one another because of our union with Christ, my good brother, my good sister. And may we never lose sight of the privilege that we have to be in the family of God and to have brothers and sisters. And over the years, I've had people come to me and say, you know what, Tim? My church family is closer to me than my biological family. And in one sense, may that be true of all of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the family of God. We, we thank you for the privilege that you have showered upon us that, that we would be able to address you as Father, address the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, as Savior, Lord, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, but also brother, and address one another as my good brother, my good sister. 
Father, may we never lose sight of just the joy and privilege and blessing of being a part of your greater family, a forever family, where the ties are so much deeper. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.